welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Good morning. Um, Welcome to Trinity Life Church. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, we're going through a series called Rethinking. Uh, And Mike has done a fantastic job opening up the first three messages. We went through uh, rethinking your identity, rethinking your destiny. Last week we talked about rethinking your influence. And today we're talking, talking about rethinking thinking. Uh, it almost sounds like I'm stuttering, rethinking thinking. And so we'll get into that in a, in a little bit um, because uh, this passage today actually talks a little bit about thinking and how sometimes God's uh, wisdom, God's way of thinking is judged. And it's kind of conceited to think of it that you would judge God's way of thinking as foolish. We're going to get into that a little bit. But before we do that, I want to talk about the connection between the way that we think and to the things that we like. Because there's a connection. The way that you think actually is linked to the things that you like. Uh, I know it doesn't sound as like, objective and smart as you want it to, but it's true. Uh, did you know that we tend to like the things that we like? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you tend to like the things that the people you like, like. Right. It almost seems too obvious to like, try to prove, right? I mean, you just say, yeah, yeah, of course I like the things that I like, right? Um, and so, but let me give you a, a couple of examples. So if you grew up in the West, if you grew up in a, a you know, very Westernized you know, home and a very Westernized society and you know, your parents were very Westernized and this is kind of, you, know, you ate North American food. So you know, if I said medium rare steak, crusted blue cheese or maybe rosemary garlic butter on top of it, you, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, totally right. Uh, if you grew up in the East, I said chicken feet. Uh, <laughs> Uh, some of us are, you know, embarrassed to admit that you like chicken feet. But if in a different part of the world, you'd, you'd like it. You know? So we, we tend to like the things that the people around us and that uh, they like. Uh, relationships, it's probably, um, you know, I mean, as much as uh, we hate to admit it, you like somebody who is similar to you. No, that doesn't mean that you have the same personality. But by and large, you're probably going to be from, you know, the same social class, you know, probably the same part of the world, you know. I mean, I would say probably by and large, the large majority of marriages are with people that are kind of like you. As a matter of fact, you know, when you get to, we're celebrating 18 years this year, Linda and I are starting to look like each other in a lot of ways. Um, and so, um, but a part of that is because we, uh, I married somebody who was similar to me. You know, we're the same ethnicity, background. For most of you guys, uh, you'll fall in some kind of court. Even if you're not from the same racial background, you have a lot of the same similarities. And then this is most obvious with probably things like political, social views. You tend to like the people that have the same views as yours, and you tend to develop your views primarily based off of the things that you resonate with, right? So it makes a lot of sense. It's hard to change the way that you think about the things that you like. Think about that. If you like it, like if I like a medium rare steak, crusted blue cheese, rosemary, garlic, butter, Curtis is saying amen, thank you Jesus, it's hard for you to try to convince me otherwise that no, you shouldn't like that. Even if you give me a documentary on how terrible it is that we treat cattle, uh, (laughs) I mean, uh, that came very close. I watched, I think it was called Moo Inc. on Netflix and it came very close. 
Um, but think about it, it's so hard to change your mind on things that you already like and the people that you like. And when we talk about, you know, things that we like, um, that's really the basis of what we uh, term common sense. And so when we say, oh yeah, that's common sense, what we're really saying is that, oh yeah, among this common group, it makes sense to us, okay? We like that idea, so what you're suggesting makes sense. And so it doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, ask that question outside of your group, but among this group, that's a common sense, right? Um, so similar to that uh, is the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is very much um, contextually confined the way that common sense is. So wisdom, wisdom, the domain of uh, wise ideas. So among us, there are certain things that we would think fall into the realm of the domain of things that are wise. And so there's a, a box of ideas that if you pull it out, yeah, that's a wise idea. So if you put that somewhere else, somebody else is not going to think that's such a wise idea. But among us, we're programmed to our common sense and our wisdom tends to be somewhat of a herd mentality, okay? Um, and that's just the nature of things. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can think evolution for that, I guess. It's just the way that we survive in terms of our preferences. So actually, sociologists, they call this social construction. Have you studied, remember studying this at some point? Social construction, I think Peter Berger was the one who came up with this term, uh, social construction. And what, what it really means is that our wisdom, our common sense, it doesn't develop from objective, investigative processes. The, our common sense and our wisdom, they develop based on our daily social interactions with people that we like. And so what we think is wise is what other people think is wise, and we like each other, we daily interact, so that is what we consider to be wise. It's socially constructed. So. The reality is that, let's think about this, and I have a statement here. I just want us to kind of pick our brain a little bit, but the reality is that much of what we call wisdom, much of what the world calls wisdom in common sense is rooted in personal preference and self-preservation. So the things that are wise to us actually are what we prefer and things that preserve us. Meaning that we're not thinking about what's wisest for everybody on the planet. We're thinking about what's best for me and my tribe. When we say, what, is that wise? That's what we're actually asking ourselves. We're not thinking about what makes sense for 8 billion people and the flourishing of humanity moving forward. We're actually thinking, how do I get mine and who are those that are going to help me do it? So that's, that tends to be the bottom line uh, reason for why we think about things that, what's common sense? What's wisdom among us? How can we achieve what we want to achieve? Uh, we're hardwired to think that way. Again, thank you, evolution. Uh, that is how we think. That's how we're supposed to think, in a sense. Um, at least that's what we're taught to think. Our wisdom and common sense is programmed to primarily benefit us and those closest to us. We don't have to scale our context to include the universe. We don't have to do this. But while we don't have to do this, right, because it would be exhausting to think, okay, what, what would be wisest for 8 billion people on the planet? Before I make a decision about my life, how do I consider, what, how does this, this affect the child in Africa, right? So some people, you know, when you bow your heads to pray, you do ask that question. You're like, you know, how does this affect people all across the world? But by and large, that's not how we have to process things. But God has to process things that way. That when God is processing wisdom and what makes sense, he has to consider the context of at least today, 8 billion people. 
but more than that, all the totality of all human history, past, present, and future. That's the context in which God is asking this question, what is wise, what makes sense? He's not just trying to save his favorite group of people over here, but he's trying to save the whole entire universe. So can you imagine that? The wisdom and the common sense that he needs, he needs to take it to a, a whole nother level um, beyond just kind of his, you know, this tribal thing. So think about this question. Imagine having to think of a, of a plan for the flourishing of the human race that would benefit every nation, man, woman, child, adult, senior, their color, ethnicity, rich, poor, healthy, sickly, high class, sophisticated, low brow, blue collar, urban, rural, educated and uneducated. And this plan has to be fair, it has to be accessible, it has to be affordable, it has to be understandable by everyone on the planet, preferably even a five-year-old. This is bigger than Obamacare. <laughs> this is a bigger challenge than a broken healthcare system. So in order for salvation to come to the human race, God's thinking, it has to surpass our thinking. As a matter of fact, I would argue that God's thinking is so much more focused. His streamline has to be so, his thinking has to be so much more streamlined and focused in order to come up with a customized solution that would fit all of us. And so the Apostle Paul says that not everyone likes or thinks God's solution is wise. To many people, it's actually foolish. They don't see how he's going to accomplish the salvation of the universe with this particular route that he's taken. I'm getting a signal here. Push it closer. Oh, like that? Okay, how's that? Like that? Okay. <laughs> I wish I could just tape it on my cheek here. Okay. So Paul says that not everybody likes it, and some people will even call it foolish. Uh, but here's the thought to challenge us for this week. And this is just kind of the baseline for what we're thinking about this week. That man's wisdom seems inclusive at first, but ends up being very exclusive. God's wisdom seems exclusive at first, but ends up being very inclusive. And it's this idea that for us to come up with an idea to reach the whole entire planet, you know, or to save or to lead to the flourishing of humankind, for us to propose a solution would at first, what we would say is like, how do we make this most accessible to everybody? But eventually, if you play that plan out, we're going to realize that human thinking, we're eventually going to begin to siphon off other people because we think like tribes, that it's programmed inside of us, that common sense and wisdom only works within a tribal mentality. But Jesus, the way, or the way that God does it, is completely different because when you first look at the way he implements his plan, it seems so very, very exclusive. It's one way. John says it's one way, it's one truth, it's one life. And so you look at it and you say, there's no possibility that this could be the redemption of the whole entire universe because it's so narrow-minded and it's so exclusive. But the way it begins to work itself out through history is we're finding, 2,000 years later at least, that it's actually become the most inclusive worldview and religious system that we've ever seen. And so I think that's the point in which Paul is trying to get at in a little bit. What we thought was foolish, God actually thinks, no, watch me. Watch how this folds. So verse 18, the first uh, verse in this passage, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Remember, uh, Paul is writing to a church that's very new, and the believers aren't very mature yet. And so they're very susceptible to different uh, philosophies, different ideas of different religions. And the honest truth is, you and I, we are too. 
especially if you're a newer believer, uh, even if you've been going to church for a while, we're very susceptible to the latest ideas and the latest trends. So I just want to sow this thought out there. It's kind of a side thought. But if you don't learn to major in the majors, you will begin to major in the minors, and your faith will morph into a vague form of spiritualism. And what this means is that at the crux of Christianity, there are these core tenets, these core understandings of who God is through Jesus Christ. And if you don't major on those, and you begin to major on the minor things, on how do you get your life put together, and how do you do all these things, what happens is that your faith will eventually morph into some kind of just spiritualist uh, way of living, and it's not necessarily what the Bible would call following Jesus. So what Paul's doing is, this is the temptation that's happening in this church. He's reminding them the majors of the faith in this passage. And he calls the major of the faith, he calls it the word of the cross. Uh, Another translation would be the message of the cross. It's the message of the cross. And these are the four essential things to understanding what he means by this phrase, the, the message of the cross or the word of the cross core major part of uh, the belief of Jesus. These are four of them. So how do we interpret the four different uh, uh, essentials of the message of the cross? The first one is, do we have that one? Okay, here we go. First one is that Jesus literally died on a Roman crucifix. It was a literal death. It was a literal cross. Uh, Probably a little bit bigger than that one. (laughs) That one's not going to do. But it was a literal death on a literal cross a Roman device used for human execution. Many, many, many other people died on it as well, um, but no doubt that Jesus did. Secondly, is that um, the other essential is that he died in our place for the forgiveness of sin. That when he died, what that meant for us was that it forgave, that in that act, uh, God forgave all the sins of humanity. And that not only did he forgive uh, our uh, 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 man's sinfulness, but Jesus died in our place. He replaced us on the cross. Thirdly, it also means that he achieved eternal peace between us and God. That just means that because there is no more sin or there's no beef between God and I, we have eternal peace, and Jesus achieved that on the cross. And then fourthly, and this is one that probably we don't mention quite a bit, but these are the implications that most of us are chasing after when we're looking for Uh, relationship with Jesus, that in his death on the cross, that gave us the power over sin and death, and that is available now for our usage. And so oftentimes when we pray for the sick or we pray for situations, we pray through the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, uh, through his sacrifice, that God, you would heal this person from this particular disease or those kinds of things. That power is available to us now. And Paul is saying that this message is actually foolishness. It sounds very moronic to those who are perishing. It's a word picture he's using to illustrate that when someone is on their deathbed, it's really hard to convince them of something like so beautiful, like the finer things in life. Imagine if you were dying, imagine you were on your deathbed and you had an oxygen respirator and you could barely breathe and you know, this thing's over your mouth. And then Curtis walks in with a medium rare steak, crusted blue cheese, garlic rosemary oil on top of it. And you're saying to him, dude, are you an idiot? I'm dying here. How can I eat this thing? For, for what Paul's trying to say is that for those, for those who are dying, this message sounds idiotic. I don't need this. Get this out of my face. It makes no sense to me. I'm dying. I'm not hungry. Completely illogical. In a little bit, I'll talk about why uh, people 
think that way at times towards this message. In, in a sense, I really don't blame them if they do. Uh, but before I do that, I want to make it clear for those of us who struggle in a different way. Um, it, most of us who became Christians and who are adult Christians right now, uh, you didn't do so because you completely understood all of the logic of the cross uh, before conversion. I mean, I could take a survey and I would guess that most of you guys were coming to some understanding of this, but you didn't have a full understanding of what the cross really meant. For most of us, the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins sounded more fairy ish than it did logical. And somewhere along the process, it was either a day or it was some kind of process or some kind of relationship, something happened where the, that particular message, the message of the cross, went from sounding illogical and stupid to at least beautiful. Or at least I can appreciate that. I can appreciate the message of sacrifice. And then you continue to journey, and it went from no longer being foolish to beautiful to actually, what, man, that makes a lot of sense for my life now. And the cross goes from being foolish to beautiful to logical. Most of us, a lot of us, that was our journey in becoming a Christian. And so I'm, I just want to let you know that if you're struggling in this way, and you look at those four things, and you're like, I don't know if those things sit well with me yet. I just want to encourage you to keep going, keep pressing. As a matter of fact, you can even ask God to reveal why it's hard for you to believe and accept these things about the message of the cross. That's a fair game question to ask. God, like, I believe that you exist out there. I just don't understand why you had to die for the sins of the world. Can you show me why that's hard for me? And that's a legitimate conversation that you can have with God. At the very minimum, you can talk to other Christians about this as well. Over the years, I've met so many people. I've met so many people over the years that uh, the cross to them, when they thought about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins, it wasn't illogical. But to them, it was just too good to be true. Because they looked at their life and they, they thought, you know, there's, I don't deserve that. How could God give his life for me? It wasn't an intellectual struggle. It was a, a life struggle for them. How could I truly be forgiven of all my sins? How could I be worthy enough that God would include me in that, in his family? And so to some, the cross isn't folly because it's illogical. To some of us, it's folly because our lifestyle is illogical. That we know that we're not living this consistent life even up to our own standards so most certainly, we must be falling short of God's standard. And I just want to encourage you that if that's you this morning, that your lifestyle, though it's subpar from your own standards and it's subpar from God's standards, that our lifestyle, when we live that way, when I live that way, that was the reason why the cross was necessary. That was the reason why the cross exists. I want, I want us to know that the cross exists to show you that God does not condemn you anymore. When you see the cross and when you think about the message of Jesus dying on the cross, it is proof, legitimate, physical, more than symbolic. It is a tangible proof that God does not condemn you for your sins. And the cross is proof that there is enough power for you to live a better life. You know, I always thought, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, so I don't know if, uh, you know, I ever got to the point where I felt like I was um, completely, you know, estranged from God. But there were moments in my life, and I began to think that, God, how could I be included in your family plan because of the way that I'm behaving now? The way that my life looks. And there are moments, and the, there's moments in the last few weeks where I'm just thinking, God, you must be done with me. 
How can you keep putting up with this? And in moments like this, and if you are a Christian and if you grew up in the church, like you get into these moments where you're just thinking, ah, I don't know if I can keep doing this. How could I go before you again? The sh- amount of shame and the amount of guilt that you carry into this partnership that you have with God, sometimes it's enough for you to at least kind of just three or four days, you're just kind of like arm's length. And I was journaling this week, and I was just, you know, confessing some things to God, just some doubt and some things that I was just, you know, struggling with, and I'm writing this. And I'm just feeling the weight of my guilt and the weight of my shame. And then I remember a passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, it says that, um, for God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what that passage is saying is that on the cross there was a transaction made, that my sins went to God through to Jesus on the cross. And through Jesus on the cross, his goodness, his righteousness came to me. And that's something that even as a Christian and a believer, that is our primary defense against any thought, foreign and domestic, that comes from the enemy. Domestic means it comes from you. Foreign means it comes from somebody else. And so, you know, this sounds almost kind of like, you know, a southern preacher, but there are times when you just need to plead the blood of Jesus in your life because that's what it's there for. Paul says, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's our ammunition. It's our electricity for God to accomplish in our church what he wants to accomplish. So this one exclusive act, the act of dying on the cross, uh, on behalf of uh, God, he blew the doors wide open to every person on the planet. There isn't one worldview, there isn't one philosophy in existence that has a wide reach and has stayed fundamentally pure to its core tenets other than the Christian faith. How is that? How is it that this movement has stayed fundamentally pure and has had the widest reach compared to any other philosophical worldview system? How is that? I think because there's a fundamental difference between uh, following Jesus, Christianity, the gospel, and other worldviews. Because in other worldviews and in other religions, you have to do the work. My dad was a Buddhist for 40 years. And so, in a Buddhism culture, in a sense, like, you have to do the work. I'm not saying it doesn't lead to moral people. I'm just saying that in this particular worldview of thinking, you have to do the work. In the Christian worldview, because of the gospel, the cross says God has done the work. And that makes it more accessible to everyone on the planet than the one that says you have to do the work. Because if you have to do the work, you're always going to fail. You're always not going to put out as much as you need to. So I believe that the implications of the message works itself out through history in that better than American Express, the message of the cross will be accepted anywhere on the planet. You were wondering where I was going with that. (laughs) We accept that anywhere. We will not deny it. This is the exclusive message of the cross with the most inclusive reach around the world. Now let's look at the wisdom of the world. Paul goes on to say, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, and it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 19, Paul uses strong language like destroy and thwart when it comes to worldly wisdom. He's kind of drawn this contrast between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. And so that's pretty heavy. Like God's going to destroy, God's going to thwart worldly wisdom. And this isn't a picture of God like rampaging through the universities and ripping up books and academic books. And he's not, that's not the picture that Paul's trying to paint here. Paul's saying that God's wisdom is going to win in the end. That it's like a race. And at the end of the race, you're going to be like, dang, God destroyed them. <laughs> like he... He won this thing, and he left them in the dust. That's, it's going to destroy, thwart the competition. So that you can tell this by verse 20, because Paul actually rhetorically taunts the competition. Right? So, where's your boy at? <laughs> He's like, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Where are you at? Right? He's saying, he's saying the wise refers to the witty, the witty people. Those who say the right things, they say it to the right people, they say it in the right time. You know them? These people are just always so, yeah. You just want to sit and listen to them. These are the wise. And then he talks about the scribes, and the scribes refer to the knowledge experts. They're the SMEs, the subject matter experts, because they're the technically skilled people, highly competent lawyers and linguists. That's what a scribe was. So they represent the experts of society. And then the debaters, these were the great uh, orators. They were eloquent, they were persuasive, and if their content was average, well, at least they would wow you with their presentation. These were the really great speakers. So in a sense, Paul is saying that the formula for worldly wisdom is this. I think we've, we've got this right up here. That wise plus scribes plus debater equals, equals worldly wisdom. Or if you're witty, and if you have expertise, and if you're a good presenter, then you're really wise in this world. And Paul is saying this is the competition that God has to, in a sense, you know, compete with. And so for many of us, if something isn't sound, if it doesn't sound profound and wise, and if it doesn't come from an SME, a subject matter expert, and if the present, presentation isn't very extravagant or compelling, eh, it's not very, it doesn't, it doesn't do much for you. So the question is, is worldly wisdom, according to this formula, is that the same as godly wisdom? Because to me, a worldly, the worldly wisdom looks a lot like a TED talk, <laughs> which looks a lot like a uh, suburban megachurch. <laughs> as a matter of fact, the TEDx talk could be uh, somewhat more of a, uh, a smaller, you know, uh, cool church in downtown with a you know, vintage auditorium. Uh, that's TEDx. TEDx is edgier than TED. It's 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 kind of neat to think about, like you know, things like TED. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not joking. I'm not making fun of TED. But things like TED has. I've actually heard a, a, a public radio uh, segment on how things like TED have become the new church for uh, liberal-minded people. And so it's kind of fun to think that. Like, that, that's kind of cool, you know, that, you know, humans, we have this need to, to congregate around ideas, and, you know, Ted even does music and all that stuff. And so, you know, like, it's kind of cool. 
But haven't you heard Brene Brown's talk on shame? Have you heard of that? And you just walked in where you're like, wow, that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> so you're self-diagnosing. Or what about the talk about like the broken U.S. penal system and you walk away and now you know that black teens in America are over-criminalized, right? You just feel like you understand, yeah, that's right. Or what about, I saw one about, you know, the atheist community that needs a church-like community because they too care about their progeny and self-preservation. Uh, these are, so when you walk away from listening to this, you're thinking, wow, that's wild. And I do too, all right? I'm not knocking on this. As a matter of fact, Billy Graham, Rick Warren, all these guys have given TED Talks. But this is the trend, this is the trend for uh, wisdom in the world today. Uh, and again, TED is just one form of it. It's just one form of it. But the formula is the same. Wit plus expertise plus presentation equals worldly wisdom. And frankly, if you compare that formula to the message of the cross, let's put up TED, not TEDx, they're not that cool. Uh, go to the other bigger picture. Okay, so if you, if you compare this picture to that picture, you know, the cross here, then of course that seems so much more sophisticated and it's so much more cool and, you know, of course that person on the stage, she must know what she's talking about and... This one over here just sounds a bit dumb and foolish. But the reality is that two-thirds of our world in the developing nations of the world, the reality is this. Two-thirds of our world find this very difficult to relate to. We do. We do. Because we're part of the two, three percent that are very privileged to have a college degree and, you know, you have choices and options. Two-thirds of the world would feel completely lost in this environment. But yet two-thirds of the world, South America, India, different parts in South Asia, Africa, are finding this message to change their life every single day. The simplicity of the cross seems so powerful in their life that to me, this almost seems more, it seems elite. And by nature of being elite, it's very exclusive to at least two-thirds of our world right now. But the message of the cross is accessible by anyone. Kelly and I, we were just talking this morning, and we said, what time did you, how old were you when you got baptized, Kelly? Seven years old when she got baptized. You understood what the cross meant. You, maybe not completely, but you understand that probably Jesus is your friend, and he gave your life for you, and if you don't open up your heart, he'll come live with you forever. Some form of that, right? And Paul said, yeah, maybe God is onto something because that simple message is much more easily received than something that's witty, something that experts talk about in a great presentation. So <clears throat> uh, let's keep moving forward. Paul continues on to say, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we seek Christ and Christ crucified. Oh, you know, I, I actually, let me step back real quick because we forgot to look at verse 21. Um, darn, okay. Let's look at this real quick. Uh, I wanted to try to get verse 21 and cross. Uh, can we go back to just the actual verse real quick? Um, 1 Corinthians 19 and 21. Uh, do, 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 do. Yep, there we go. Uh, 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so Paul's saying something very significant, that God actually uses his wisdom, not the world's wisdom, to save people. This is the DYV version that uh, I translated for us directly from the Greek, okay? For since God's common sense knows that the average person in the world doesn't get to know him through TED Talk quality presentations, God was very content to use people sharing by word of mouth the simple message of Jesus dying on the cross as his method to win the hearts and minds of people. And that's, what, that's the sense of what Paul's saying. That's not from the Greek, by the way. Uh, that's the sense in which Paul's saying, yeah, God's, God's got a different way of doing things. Uh, he's trying to win hearts. Uh, so go on to verse 22. It says that for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says that there are two kinds of thinking that stumbles over the cross. Two kinds of people that use the cross as an excuse not to believe in God. And the first one is a Jewish mindset. Uh, he says Jews demand signs. They, they want power. Bring the power back. Work the way that you used to work in the Old Testament. You know, there were floods, there were miracles, fire came down from heaven. God, if you're real, show us the magic stuff. Um, so, you know, they're like, ah, don't take the concept of the Messiah and nail him on the cross. That just looks so weak compared to the Old Testament God. So, God, if, you, if you're real, would you just heal my grandmother? Or, God, you know, if you could get me through this financial situation, then I would truly believe that you're real, that you're, you're actually who you say you are. So, in a sense, when God doesn't show up in a way like this, people who think like the Jewish mindset, in a sense, God isn't very impressed, impressive to them. They look at the cross, and that's not a very impressive way to show up. Um, it's not very entertaining. And there is a movement in which, you know, if God is not entertaining, and if God is not interesting, and if he's not impressive, then he's not worth following. As a matter of fact, um, uh, there's a book called um, uh, um, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, by a guy named Neil Postman. Anybody read that book before? It's a fantastic read. And he actually talks about how um, uh, uh, the North Americans, Americans in particular, so you won't be offended by this because this book's about America, uh, how Americans are uh, addicted to entertainment. So Canadians aren't, but Americans are. So as a society, we are addicted to adrenaline and excitement. Like, that gets us going. It's part of the reason why coffee is such a big deal in the last 50 years. Uh, part of the reason why, you know, even yoga studios have opened up because we have, to, we have to replenish our adrenalines by just, you know, meditating and all these kinds of things. So everything's all tied in. So he wrote his book, which is a critique on modern culture and the need for entertainment. And I got a free PDF version if you're interested in reading it. But this is his quote from uh, the book. He says, Americans, again, man, phew, Canadians, you're, you're free from this. <clears throat> Americans no longer talk to each other. They, they entertain each other. They don't exchange ideas, they exchange images. And this is 1985 before Instagram. Uh, if he only knew how prophetic he was. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. It's funny because it's true. Like if you want to advance your cause, get Bono or Brad to endorse it. It must be true. 
It must be worthy because Bono. And I like Bono. Uh, get behind Red and all of those. One, go for it. Um, but see, we do this both inside and outside of the church. right? Because uh, we have to be impressed and entertained for us to be won over. Um, because, you know, even, even Christian books, um, most of them, they don't sell because they're particularly great. A lot of Christian books sell because they're very entertaining, because you find their lifestyles very inspiring. You would prefer to read about their life than live in an inspiring life yourself, so, you know, it replaces, you know, uh, other kinds of novels. Um, and atheists do this too. If you've read Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, they're much more provocative and impressive than they are informational, by the way, if you ever read any of their books. Uh, both very smart men, much smarter, 800 times smarter than me. But after reading uh, uh, Dawkins' books, I'm like, well, he's very provocative. I didn't gain much, a whole lot from his argument still. So both religious, atheists, Christian, we all, all of us, we all do this. And when we do this, the cross is a stumbling block because you look at the story and you're like, it's not very impressive. A guy who was supposed to lead a movement dies. And Paul says there's a second mindset. He talks about the Greek mindset. This is the mindset that seeks wisdom. As we said before, the formula is wit plus expertise plus presentation. And the idea of a man dying on the cross for the sins of the world isn't initially very stimulating to our brain. It doesn't sound sophisticated enough. And it's tempting for preachers like us to try to make this message sound sophisticated. Because if we make it sound sophisticated, that maybe we'll appeal to those who want it to sound sophisticated. Really, we're just appealing to the ego that needs to f- feel like they're in the know so much. Um, but when you end up trying to make this message overly sophisticated, you make it very inaccessible to two-thirds of the world that they don't need sophistication. They just need truth. They just need power in their life. So Paul says, there's a group of you guys who you'll find this message very boring, and they don't have any fruit in your life. Greek-minded people, they wanted to have secret insight. This was the beginning of the Gnostic age. They wanted secret insight. Again, I said they wanted their egos to, 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 to be in the know. What they didn't realize was that within the message of the cross was like, it was like the king or the creator of the universe. He was hidden behind the shabby clothing. And if they could get past the shabby clothing, they would discover the person who could tell every single intricacy of the universe to them. Blow their minds if they wanted to smithereens. If they could just get past the shabby clothing. And for some of us, it's very difficult for us. Because that doesn't look like a sophisticated man who can lead us. So these two mindsets are a stumbling block. Uh, too weak or not enough wisdom. Not enough not being impressed. And the honest truth is, we're talking about rethinking your thinking. That you, me, we, you can't really make your minds do something that it won't do. Like I, you couldn't just say, okay, now I believe. You can, it's not a switch. You can't turn it on like that. Paul, Paul gives us a clue as to what is a third mindset. He, he kind of begins to tease it out. Next week, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, it's a two-part message, so come back next week. Uh, but Paul begins to tease out a little bit more in verse 24. Um, he says, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek. So he says that, yeah, you were of the Jewish mindset. Yeah, you were of the Greek mindset. But there were some of you 
that were called out of it. There were some of you that actually you did have a change of mind. You did rethink the way that you were thinking. You did begin to reimagine this message in a different way. That it is possible to change your mind. He says, but to those who are called, to those who are being summoned, to those who are being invited, to those who are being awakened, you realize that this became the wisdom of God and the power of God. You see, the third mindset, there's a, there's a point when the cross eventually breaks through your mindset. When God's voice calls, summons, invites, awakens your spirit, you begin to respond to that. And you don't respond with argument, you respond with humility. It's like, okay, let me hear this again. When God initiates a conversation with you, for some of you, God's been talking to you for years, conversation years. He's calling you. He's calling you. He's, he's speaking to you before he's trying to prove himself to you. And your job is to hear and ask for more. That's why it's integral to at least what we talk about. How do we, at Trinity Life, how do you become a disciple of Jesus? You learn to hear God's voice, trust it, and obey it. And so I want to share with you a prayer. We're getting ready to conclude here. Uh, part two is next week, but we're getting ready to conclude today. I want to share with you a prayer um, that you can pray. It's a fair game prayer. If you have a hard time hearing from God, or you have a hard time confirming whether or not this is God or not, because I, I suspect that many of you, even if you grew up in the church, that you get to a point in your life when you're wondering, I think I hear God calling me, I just don't know. Or I think this seems to starting to make more sense to me, but I just don't know. And we're in that transition from we're leaving a Jewish mindset where God has to prove himself to you to the mindset where you're just like, if I just knew that I can be in a relationship with him, that would change everything. You see, most of us, we don't, we don't come to uh, accept Christ in our lives because we've gotten every single answer to our questions answered. Most of us, that's not how it happened. You came into it. It was almost like those questions teased you into it. But that's not, you know, if I sat down and gave you a 500-page book on why suffering in the world exists from the lens of the Bible, I'm almost convinced that that may change your mind, but it's not going to make you believe the message of the cross. So for most of us, our questions, let me throw this out there, is God calling you? He's awakening you, and he wants you to give a humble response to hear and ask for more. There's a story in Mark 9 that contains the prayer that I'm talking about. A man has a sick child. Uh, the child has epilepsy and it, he keeps falling to the ground in very violent seizures. And Jesus' disciples, they're praying for this child and he, he's just not being healed. And, but see, the, the father, he doesn't have the Jewish mindset, so he's not upset. He goes to Jesus and says, you know, your disciples have prayed for my son. He's still not healed. And so they're going back and forth, and they're having this conversation. And this is where we'll pick up from Mark 9, verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, the father said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You see that prayer? 
I believe. Help my unbelief. It's almost a kind of a paradoxical, foolish kind of sounding prayer. I, I believe, help my unbelief, but it's a very wise prayer. I believe, help my unbelief, because it's sometimes for a lot of us, it's the most sincere prayer that you can pray right now. I believe, help my gap, fill in the gaps, God. I believe, help my unbelief. Why is this the best prayer? Because it's a humble prayer. It's admitting that you want to, but you can't. And when you want to and you can't, that gives God so much room to come in. I believe, but help my unbelief. Believing in Jesus, dying on the cross for your sins, is initially a very offensive message because it requires you admitting that you admit that you have sin in your life. It requires you admitting that I did something to violate uh, God's principles. And the only way, the only way to stop being offended by the cross is to look at the cross and see it as the place where God most accurately said to you, I love you. That's the only way to stop being offended by this message of the cross, that you are a sinner in need of grace and salvation, is you would rethink about the cross condemning you and saying, you're such a sinner, and you see it as a symbol which God says to the whole entire world, including you, I really do love you. And the way that you respond back to that message isn't that you try more, is that you actually just say, well, thank you. I love you too. When you pray, I believe, help my unbelief, there's so much room for God to continue to grow you in the areas that you struggle the most. Next week, we're going to talk about how God does things in an upside-down way. But this morning, I just want to pray for us that if you're in a place right now where you believe, you grew up, you went to church, blah, 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 stuff like that, or maybe, you know, you're on this journey, and then all of a sudden, you know that, okay, I'm ready to make this decision. That is, I just want to pray for you that something about the message of the cross didn't just bring you closer to God, but it just, the power of God is going to be much more significant in your life now, that you're willing to go to Him and say, God, I really believe you, but help me with the rest. Let me pray over us. God, thank you that the cross is the power uh, that first looked very weak, first it looked very um, nonsensical. But for many of us, we've known it to now be the place in which we have built a milestone in our life. That cross signifies a stake in the ground that we believe you. Thank you for saying that you love us through sending Jesus to die for us. I just want to say I love you back. Thank you, God. God, I just pray that over the next week, over the next few weeks, those of us who are making the decision for baptism, those of us who are making a decision to share their faith with their friends and their families and their coworkers, that God, you would release power over their life over the next, even now, the power of the cross, the victory over sin, temptation, the devil, evil, that you release that over people. God, it's hard for us to struggle intellectually with <clears throat> this message to think that our thinking is wrong because we have thought a certain way for such a long time. And God, I pray that if that <clears throat> is an area that you're working in, that God, you begin to loosen what I would call strongholds in people's hearts and their minds.
strongholds created from um, false information, from worldly wisdom. Maybe it sounded witty at the time. Maybe it sounded like it came from an expert. Maybe it was a really impressive presentation and it created a stronghold in our mind, a stronghold of impossibility to faith. I just pray now through the power of the cross in Jesus that God, you would break down those impossibilities in people's minds even right now. And God, for those of us who have prayed and they trusted you and you've not given the miracle that we've wanted, you've not given us the very thing that we think could increase our faith, God, I pray that you would help us to persevere through that and that we would keep looking to the cross and not the miracle for the growth of our faith. And God, I pray that it would be on meditating on the cross that we would see that the greatest miracle has already happened, that you've guaranteed eternal life for us. And I just bless those of us who struggle with the power aspect, that we would trust in the, the, the cross is enough. It is complete there. And this morning as we come to the table, God, we do it with our minds and our hearts devoted to you so that you can use this act as a physical representation of the gospel that we stand on, the gospel that we preach, and the gospel that we live by. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.